For those of you that were here uh, during the introductory message to Romans, anybody remember what we likened studying this book to? What? All right, that, no, that was God in the book of Romans, was like hitting the rock. But actually partaking the studying of this book. I love to leave indelible impressions upon people. Climbing Mount Everest. Thank you, Scott. That won't be the first mention, of the last mention of Scott this morning. He's in the message, by the way. There's an illustration with Scott Duff in here. So just be ready for that. And remember that. That's an indelible impression, Scott Duff. Um, but no, when we talked about studying the book of Romans, we talked about it's like scaling Mount Everest. It is a monstrous task. This is This book is the Everest of the Bible. And really what's been going on the last three chapters is we've been in base camp. And we're gathering our team. And what we found out about our team is that they're all sinners, okay? But it's kind of like we have been hearing at base camp how hard this is going to be, how nearly impossible this is, about how nobody can do this on their own, right? I mean, do you get the picture? And what we're going to start doing today, we're going to start our ascent up this mountain. And again, you heard, if you were here when we started singing, you heard the passage that we're going to look at. What I want to do is quickly review with you the outline that we're following for the book of Romans. (coughs) And this this outline came from, I believe it was a, a Moody commentary. Not like it was Moody. It was published by a group named Moody. And where we have been is point one, sin, which showed us the need for being right with God. And we said that the theme of the book of Romans is being right with God. So we've spent three chapters, and you'll hear that many, many times today, seeing how everybody is a sinner. If you are a sinner, raise your hand. I should see every hand up. Because let me tell you what, what we've learned over the last three chapters is that everybody in all the world who's ever been born and whoever will be born was born a sinner. Everybody. You can now put your hands down. Thank you. So that's where we've been. And if, if I didn't know where Paul was going with that, man, it would get pretty obnoxious, truthfully. It could be very depressing. And actually, I think it's meant to be somewhat depressing to show the hopelessness of our situation. What we're moving into today and what we'll we'll be engaging in from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, which is verse 25, is justification by faith. The means for being right with God. Let me read something. And this is like four pages, I think, of this. Anybody ever read the Ragamuffin Gospel? Please read this book. Please read it. The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. This is the start of the first chapter. And it gives us an an entrance into what we're going to talk about today. The name of the chapter is Something is Radically Wrong. On a blustery October night in a church outside Minneapolis, several hundred believers had gathered for a three-day seminar. I began with a one-hour presentation on the gospel of grace and the reality of salvation. Using scripture, story, symbolism, and personal experience, 
I focused on the total sufficiency of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. The service ended with a song and a prayer. Leaving the church by a side door, are you ready for this? The pastor turned to his associate and fumed. Quote the pastor, That airhead didn't say one thing about what we have to do to earn our salvation. End of quote. The pastor. Manning's next statement is, something is radically wrong. The bending of the mind by the powers of this world has twisted the gospel of grace into religious bondage and distorted the image of God into an eternal, small-minded bookkeeper. The Christian community resembles a Wall Street exchange of works wherein the elite are honored and the ordinary ignored. Love is stifled, freedom shackled, and self-righteousness fastened. The institutional church has become a wounder of the healers rather than a healer of the wounded. Put bluntly, the American church today accepts grace in theory but denies it in practice. We say we believe that the fundamental structure of reality is grace, not works, but our lives refute our faith. By and large, the gospel of grace is neither proclaimed, understood, nor lived. Too many Christians are living in the house of fear and not in the house of love. Our culture has made the word grace impossible to understand. We resonate to slogans such as, there's no free lunch. You get what you deserve. You want money? Work for it. You want love? Earn it. You want mercy? Show you deserve it. Do unto others before they do it unto you. Watch out for welfare lines, the shiftless street people, free hot dogs at school, affluent students with federal loans. It's a con game. By all means, give others what they deserve, but not one penny more. My editor at Revel told me she overheard a pastor say to a child, God loves good little boys. As I listen to sermons with their pointed emphasis on personal effort, no pain, no gain, I get the impression that a do-it-yourself spirituality is the American fashion. Though the Scriptures insist on God's initiative in the work of salvation, that by grace we are saved, that the capitalized tremendous lover, tremendous lover has taken to the chase, our spirituality often starts with self, not God. Personal responsibility has replaced personal response. We talk about acquiring virtue as if it were a skill that can be attained like good handwriting or a well-grooved golf swing. In the penitential seasons, we focus on overcoming our weaknesses, getting rid of our hang-ups, and reaching Christian maturity. We sweat through various spiritual exercises as if they were designed to produce a Christian Charles Atlas. Almost done. Though lip service is paid to the gospel of grace, many Christians live as if it is only personal discipline and self-denial that will mold the perfect me. In this curious process, God is a benign old spectator in the bleachers who cheers when I show up for morning quiet time. We transfer the Horatio Alger legend of the self-made man into our relationship with God. As we read Psalm 123, as the eyes of the servant are on the hands of his master, as the eyes of a maid are on the hands of her mistress, we experience a vague sense of existential guilt. Our eyes are not on God. At heart, we are practicing Pelagians. We believe that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Indeed, we can do it ourselves. And he finishes this passage with this 
last part. Stay with me. Sooner or later, we are confronted with the painful truth of our inadequacy and insufficiency. Our security is shattered and our bootstraps are cut. Once the fervor has passed, a weakness and infidelity appear. We discover our inability to add even a single inch to our spiritual stature. There begins a long winter of discontent that eventually flowers into gloom, pessimism, and a subtle despair. Subtle because it goes unrecognized, unnoticed, and therefore unchallenged. It takes the form of boredom and drudgery. Does that sound familiar with what Andrew was saying Wednesday night, by the way? We're overcome by the ordinariness, ordinariness of life, by daily duties done over and over again. We secretly admit that the call to Jesus is too demanding, that surrender to the Spirit is beyond our reach. We start acting like everyone else. Life takes on a joyless, empty quality. We begin to resemble the leading character in Eugene O'Neill's play, The Great God Brown, who says, Why am I afraid to dance? I who love music and rhythm and grace and song and laughter. Why am I afraid to live? I who love life and the beauty of flesh and the living colors of the earth and the sky and sea. Why am I afraid to love? I who love love. Something is radically wrong. Our huffing and puffing to impress God, our scrambling for brownie points, our thrashing about trying to fix ourselves while hiding our pettiness and wallowing in guilt are nauseating to God and are a flat denial of the gospel of grace. Our approach to the Christian life is as absurd as the enthusiastic young man who had just received his plumber's license and was taken to see Niagara Falls. He studied it for a minute and then said, I think I can fix this. The word itself, grace, has become trite and debased through misuse and overuse. It does not move us the way it moved our early Christian ancestors. In some European countries, certain high ecclesiastical officials are still called your grace. Sports writers speak of Michael Jordan's easy grace. And I'm going to date this book a little bit. And entrepreneur David, Donald Trump has been described as lacking in grace. A new perfume appears which has the label grace. And a child's report card is called a disgrace. The word has lost its raw imaginative power. Dostoevsky caught the shock and scandal of the gospel of grace when he wrote, At the last judgment Christ will say to us, Come you also, come drunkards, come weaklings, come children of shame. And He will say to us, Vile beings, you who are in the image of the beast and bear His mark, but come all the same you as well. And the wise and prudent will say, Lord, why do you welcome them? And He will say, If I welcome them, you wise men, if I welcome them, you prudent men, it is because not one of them has ever been judged worthy. And he will stretch out his arms, and we will fall at his feet, and we will cry out sobbing. Then we will understand all, and we will understand the gospel of grace. Lord, your kingdom come. I do not promote universalism, by the way. Don't take that from that. Now, I'm, I was wrong on the previous page. This is how it finishes. I'm sorry. Sorry to put you through such a lengthy reading. This is the main point that I want you to hear. I believe the Reformation actually began the day Martin Luther was praying over the meaning of Paul's words in Romans 1.17. In the gospel, this is what reveals the righteousness of God to us. It shows how faith leads to faith, or as Scripture says, the righteous shall find life through faith, or the righteous shall live by faith. Like many Christians today, Luther wrestled through the night with the core question, 
And this is the question I want you to ask yourselves this morning. How could the gospel of Christ be truly called good news if God is a righteous judge rewarding the good and punishing the evil? Did Jesus really have to come to reveal that terrifying message? How could the revelation of God in Christ Jesus be accurately called news since the Old Testament carried the same theme or good with the threat of punishment hanging like a dark cloud over the valley of history? But, as Yaroslav Pelikan notes, Luther suddenly broke through to the insight that the righteousness of God that Paul spoke of in this passage was not the righteousness by which God was righteous in Himself. We'll talk about that today. That would be passive righteousness. But the righteousness by which, for the sake of Jesus Christ, God made sinners righteous, which is active righteousness. Through the forgiveness of sins and justification, when he discovered that, Luther said it was as though the very gates of paradise had been opened to him. What a stunning Thank you for bearing with me through that. It sets the stage perfectly for what we're going to talk about today. If you have a Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 21 and we will read through verse 26. And I'm going to admit to you up front, this is at best half a message. We're not going to resolve a whole lot today. We'll probably resolve more next week, Lord willing, than we do today. Today is, dare I say, informational. It's the best I could do. There's just too much here. <laughs> There's just too much here to dig in and say, I'm going to plow through these six verses and help everybody understand what they mean. There's just too much. So we'll probably get to the end and you may say, is that all you got? It's all I got. I'm just telling you that up front. There's just too much here to try to pack into 45 minutes to an hour. So I spared you the extra hour, and we'll do it next week. So if you would stand with us as we read the Scripture together in reverence of the Word of God, in reverence of the God of the Word. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we start up this mountain, I'm already tired. I'm already overwhelmed. And God, I got nothing this morning. But you have it all. And I pray that this morning you would open the storehouses of the treasure that is in this Word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would you speak to us this morning. Not my words, your words, God. And may we be overwhelmed by them. 
I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated, sorry. <laughs> Sometimes you forget. And again, I, I just I just want to start by being honest. I am I am overwhelmed by this. I tremble to think of what the rest of this book is going to be like because right now I'm just <laughs> this is just this is unbelievable. And I mean that. This is unbelievable. And I think God made it that way on purpose so that we would have to trust Him to believe it. We're going to start with verse 21. We'll probably work through 21 and through part of 24 today. That's the goal. I will, I'll, I'll do my best to not keep you too long. But if I do keep you too long, you can fire me. I'm okay with that. <clears throat> verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. No. After almost three full chapters of pointing out the fact that every human being of all time is a sinner and is condemned under sin, the whole letter turns on the hinge of this conjunctive clause. But now. The door is swinging open. And I want you to feel the full weight and effect of that. But now is a huge clause right here. Having just come out of verse 20, which says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Coming out of that, we have a dramatic shift, a turning point of the message that is being conveyed to the readers of this letter. After pointing out sin and the sinfulness of sinning, sin and the sinfulness of sinning sinners who commit those sins, Paul becomes solutions focused. This is what I've been trying to really preach to my kids as far as life goes. Don't be problem focused. Don't come in and tell me there's something wrong. Tell me what you did to fix what was wrong. Be solutions focused, not problems focused. I spilled my drink. I don't want to hear I spilled my drink. I want to hear, I spilled my drink and I got the mop and I mopped it up. Sound mean, don't I? Paul is becoming solutions focused here and that's a great thing for us. He sets out to tell us how to overcome the problem of sin, which is a very real problem for everyone. But I want to point out one thing in particular that we will probably spend some time next week, we will, talking about in more detail. After seeing sin, I would think Paul would set out to tell us about our need for righteousness. And he does, but not at first. Look at verse 21 again. But now the righteousness of... What's the next word? Okay. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. What I stop and think for a second is, but wait a minute, you've been speaking for three chapters about the sinfulness of man, which in my mind really kind of highlights the righteousness of God. Because if man is so bad, in contrast, I would think that God is so good. What I need is a solution. It seems to me initially that Paul 
is highlighting the disparity between the sinfulness of man and the righteousness of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Stay with me there. It's important to see that Paul's first goal is not to say, okay, you know you're sinners, so now, you sinners, this is how you get righteous. This is what you need to do to be righteous. And that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's attention turns to God's righteousness. So he's pounding the sinfulness of man for three chapters. And then he says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Now the righteousness of God. During this passage, please listen. It is imperative. It is imperative for us to understand that God is the focal point. Because I'm telling you, our solutions focusedness, we start thinking, what have I got to do to be righteous? Okay, I'm convinced I'm a sinner. What have I got to do to be righteous? And Paul turns our gaze away from that and he says, the righteousness of God. God is the focal point. And it is so for the whole book of Romans. When we were talking about sin, we referenced the fact that what made sin so sinful is not how it affects each of us, but the fact that it's an affront to the holiness of God. Sin is not primarily what we do to each other or its effects on one another. Sin is defined as sin because God hates it. And it's what verse 23, we'll get to in a minute, will call falling short of God's glory. If there is a righteousness to be revealed, it has to be God's righteousness. That is irreplaceable for the rest of this message. Just like Manning said, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you what you have to do to be righteous, to get righteous. What I'm going to do is highlight the righteousness of God. And that's really good news, and you'll see why in a few minutes. So I think we need to define righteousness, and I think we have already through some of our messages. And I'm going to bore you with a Greek word because it's important. And for those who don't know, the number up there is the Strong's Concordance number. Some of you are saying, I've heard this 20 times. We're going to hear it 21. There was a guy named James Strong who numbered every word in the Bible and then he found the Greek word and then defined it so that we could look up the word by the number. So that 1343 is the Strong's reference number. If you've got a concordance, you can use that. That's for a different message. The writing beside it is the actual Greek word written in Greek. And then we've got the pronunciation of it after the English transliteration. So this is how we would write it in English. This is how we would pronounce it. Dikayasune. That's not super important right now, but it will be later. And the word righteousness means in a broad sense, the state of him who is as he ought to be. It means righteousness, which is good. Righteousness means righteousness. The condition acceptable to God. The doctrine concerning the way in which man may attain a state approved of God. Integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking and feeling and acting. And then number two, 
in a narrower, narrower sense, justice or the virtue which gives each his due. So, let me ask you this. Looking at this definition, if we say that God is righteous, and He is, would, would we agree with that? Everybody agree that God is righteous. Paul just said, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Looking at this definition, these definitions, which of these apply to God being righteous? Number one does to a point the state of him who is as he ought to be. The condition acceptable to God. God is as he ought to be. God is acceptable to God. One A is about the doctrine of how a man may be righteous. So one A doesn't really apply to God. One B does for sure. God has integrity. Perfect integrity, which would be a great word to study, by the way. We're not going to do it this morning. God is virtuous. God has purity of life. God has rightness. God has correctness of thinking and feeling and acting. And number two applies as well. God does embody justice. And God will give each his due. We saw back in Romans 2 that when the world is judged, each will be judged according to their works. So tuck that away. And next week will be a lot more about that than this week will be. But tuck that away because that is righteousness. That is God being God. He, has, he is as He ought to be. He is acceptable to Himself. He has integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting, and He will give to each His due. Very important. But for next week. So for this week, let's see how this train of thought plays out and how it applies to us. Okay? And how we are to become righteous. So the rest of verse 21 says that the righteousness of, righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We saw back earlier in chapter 3 that one of the benefits of being Jewish was that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, which includes the law. But the law was not sent, nor was it ever meant to be sent to save anyone. So we see the outworking of that here where we see that the righteousness of God has been manifested or clearly seen Manifested means clearly seen, realized, understood, apart from the law. So, if a man is to understand or realize God's righteousness, it will not be through the law. It will be apart from the law. The law and the prophets, or what we call the Old Testament, bore witness to the righteousness of God, but they couldn't bring it about or make it attainable. The Old Testament showed a holy God and a sinful man. And a sinful man who is so sinful, there's no way that he could ever attain to the holiness of God. That's what the Old Testament did. So the, the righteousness of God 
although born witness to through the law and the prophets, was not fully revealed in the Old Testament or in the law. So let's go back to verse 22. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, I'll have to... Let me go back. I want to have it in front of you if you don't have it. So, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is the most potent verse I have come across in my life. That is laden with power. So, let's attack it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And we'll get to the last part of verse 22 in the next section. So let's leave off that for there's no distinction for right now. Let's focus on the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no way to overstate how important this verse is if we are going to understand Christianity at all. I could not stand up here for 20 minutes and give you adjectives and superlatives saying this is really, 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 really important. So we see that the law can't make us righteous. It cannot. But what can? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the righteousness of God is shown, manifested, apprehended, understood through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now let's unpack that clause very carefully and as completely as we can. So this is God's righteousness. Keep that in mind. How does one latch on to it? How does one make God's righteousness their own? What's it say? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that's so cliche to us that we don't really understand it. I know that I don't think I did. So how do we latch on to this righteousness? We latch on to this righteousness through faith. What does through faith mean? There are echoes in another passage that you've heard hundreds of times in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says that we're saved by grace through faith. So here we see that the righteousness of God is manifested or attained to through faith. In Ephesians, we're saved by grace through faith. The word through is the Greek word, this is an easy one, D-I-A, dia. I don't have that up there because that's pretty easy, dia. And it means, through means, by means of, on account of, because of this reason. So the righteousness of God by the means of faith. And what is faith? These are nickel words that are really silver dollars. They're bigger than we make them. Faith. What is faith? Clearest, easiest definition of faith comes from the Bible itself. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. Listen. You want to know what faith is? The Bible tells us. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Read it again. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is being sure that what you hope for is real and true 
and it is having a conviction of something you do not see. You're like, well, that doesn't sound very promising. (laughs) So here, faith is being sure that your hope in Jesus is true and having the conviction of it, although you've never seen Him. Anybody ever seen Jesus? I always like to poll the audience on that one, see if there's that one guy. Yeah, I saw him. Tell me about that. (laughs) Faith is being sure that your hope in Jesus is true and then having the conviction of it, although you've never seen Him. Hebrews 11.6 goes a little further when it says, and without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Now I hope that triggers a little red flag in your head. Because something we saw two Sundays ago was We said that nobody seeks God. But here it says that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hmm. Is that a problem? Yep. It is a problem. We're going to talk about it. Hebrews 11.6 makes it clear that no one can be right with God or please Him apart from faith. You have to believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Now my question is, how does He reward them? And Romans would tell us that He rewards them, listen, please listen, by giving them His righteousness. I want you to stop and I want you to take that in. God rewards the faithful, those with faith, faith in Jesus. He rewards that faith by giving them His very righteousness. He is the rewarder of those who seek Him and His reward is being right with Him by means of giving that seeker His very righteousness. But nobody seeks for God. So who can be righteous? How monstrously huge and expansive the thought of God giving His own righteousness to somebody is. So if you could be given the righteousness of God, what would you be willing to do to receive that righteousness? And let me tell you, that's the wrong question to ask. Because you can't do anything to receive that gift. Hmm. What does it mean to receive the righteousness righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Does it mean that you simply have to believe that Jesus was real? No, it does not. We'll get to that in verse 24. At the end of this verse we have the first clause in a sentence that runs through verse 25, which is very Pauline. Paul has these long sentences that have multiple clauses in it, but if you don't line them up, you lose track of what he's talking about. What we'll do today is read that clause at the end of verse 24. uh, Verse 20, I'm sorry, not 24. The end of verse 22. 
and we'll read through verse 24 to understand what does it mean to receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let me go to that. Stay with me. I'm going to read this all together and this will be all we go through today. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ugh. Let me tell you what. That's a lot of information. For there's no distinction. So, what we're going to do in this passage and tie it all together for some application at the end is we're going to address some pretty big doctrinal words. And again, I'm building a case and the case is really finished next week. So don't, don't lose sight of what's going on here. We've already seen righteousness. We've already seen faith. And now we're going to look at some more biggies in this part. Words like sin, glory, justified, grace, and redemption. And those are huge. They are absolutely huge. They're pillars that our faith is built upon. So we need to see what they are and what they mean. So, coming out of the statement that God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul reminds us, lest we too soon forget, that without distinction, all have sinned. I think he spent adequate time in the first three chapters showing how big a deal sin is and also that everyone, the pagan, the religious, and even the Jew, everyone is guilty before God. Here he capsulizes those three chapters and says there is no distinction for all have sinned. And then that clause after for all have sinned is a good clarifier for us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is what? can be defined many ways. Sin is missing the mark of God's holiness or perfection, not attaining to God's righteousness. And again, I'll allude back to 1 John many moons ago. John defined sin as lawlessness. He said sin is lawlessness. John Piper says, sin is a failure to embrace the glory of God and God Himself as our highest treasure, to embrace Him as our supreme value of our lives. End quote. When we sin, we miss the mark of God's holiness, but we also, as Paul says here, fall short of the glory of God. Now, by way of reminder, what is glory? What pops into your mind when you think glory? We talked about this a few times in the last couple of years. Uh, for those who don't know or who wasn't here for that, let me give you a quick little illustration of what glory is. I remember Scott Duff. Do you remember this? Okay, yeah, okay. This is a Scott Duff illustration that y'all were waiting so eagerly for. We were talking about glory on a Wednesday night, and we were in a circle in chairs in the back. And Josiah had been playing guitar, and there was a guitar sitting there. And to help define glory, glory is the right understanding of what something is and what something or someone is capable of. So I had Scott pick up the guitar, and I said, Scott, play us something. And Scott took his fingers and went bring and sounded a very indistinct tone, to say the least, okay? And Susie Halk was sitting beside him. I said, now, give that to Susie. Well, Susie can play the guitar. She knows how to play the guitar. So I said, hand that to Susie. I said, now, Susie, play us something. 
and Susie begins to play this pretty chord melody thing, and I'm like, yeah. So who did we see the glory of the guitar best in their hands? Scott or Susie? Right. What we saw was in Susie's hand what that guitar was potentially capable of. We saw what that guitar could do. In Scott's hands, not so much. Sorry. It's fine. So glory is a right apprehension of something. This is what this thing is capable of. I know like this much about a computer, but I know some people who know like this much about a computer, and they'll say, look, all you got to do is this right here. And this, my computer starts doing things, and I'm like, I didn't know that that could do that. So under the fingers of this person who knows a lot more than me, I see the glory of my computer a little more. So when we talk about the glory of God, it's a right apprehension of who God is and what He's capable of. So when we sin, and who has sinned? All have sinned. When we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. When we sin, we fail to understand who God really is. We fail to understand what He's capable of. Now, I want to point out something quickly. Another definition. I know you're just on the edge of your seat waiting for a good Greek definition. The phrase falls short. This is important. Hysterio. We won't get into hysterical things this morning. Same root word though. It means behind, to come late or too tardily, to be left behind in the race and so fail to reach the goal, to fall short of the end, fail to become a partaker, to fall back from, to be inferior in power, influence, and rank, of the person to be inferior to, to fail, to be wanting, to be in lack or want of. I read that backwards. I understand that. Don't you hate it when somebody's speaking and they do that and you're like, you just read that backwards. To be in want of, to lack, to suffer want, to be devoid of, to lack. You see a word popping up here? Lack, lack. To be inferior in excellence and in worth. So when I talk about falling short of the glory of God, ultimately what I'm saying is all have sinned and lack the glory of God. Who has? All. Everybody in this room, everybody from Adam until Jesus comes back and there's no more births. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. But what we saw earlier was that the righteousness of God has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. So, it's kind of starting to heat up. It's starting to get real here. So we're talking about big theological concepts. We're talking about Bible words, big, big thoughts. So we've seen that God shows us His righteousness apart from the law and that it's manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And we also saw that all have sinned and fall short or lack God's glory. And we saw what glory was. And so now the hinge turns again from sin to good news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 24. I really should have set this slideshow up a little better. So anybody that's good with PowerPoint, show me the glory of PowerPoint because I'm wrestling with it. Verse 24. Only 17 words in the ESV, but these words are concentrated awesomeness. Verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And... Not but, 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I promise I'm not a universalist. Stay with me. So if a sinner is going to get a hold of the glory of God, if a sinner is going to receive Christ and thus harbor that very same glory, something has to happen. Turn your Bibles, if you will, back to John 17. And I don't have this up here, I'm sorry. We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We talked about God's glory and falling short of God's glory. John 17, Jesus prayed something in what we call the high priestly prayer. I'm reading in John 17, starting in verse 22. This is Jesus speaking. He's praying to God. And this is what He says. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And He's preaching. He's praying for His disciples here. The glory that you have given me, praying to God about Himself for His disciples. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So here, in this passage, in John 17, Jesus is saying that He gave us His disciples, people that believe in Him, trust in Him, follow Him, that He gave us the glory that the Father gave Him. Meaning, literally. He was giving Himself to us. Him and us, He said, God in Him, so that we might know that we are loved by God in the same way that Jesus is loved by God. And that is exactly what's going on here in our Romans passage. And how does that happen? Verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If a sinner is going to receive Christ and thus harbor the very same glory that Jesus has, something has to happen. That person, and here's the big word today, that person has to be justified. What is justification? Again, Huge concept. To be justified means that you have a good reason, that you have the right reason to do something or to be somewhere. Here's something that might help you think about this. If somebody walks up to me one day and I'm at my car and I've got a big giant rock and I take that rock and I break my window. Somebody walks up and is going, what are you doing? First of all, I don't even know if it's my car. And so I looked at them, I said, it's my car, don't, don't sweat it, don't worry about it. And they're going, why did you break your window? And then I tell them, my child is locked in that car, out of their car seat, the keys are in the ignition, the car's running, and I don't have another set of keys. Now, do I have a reason to break that window? Am I justified in breaking that window? Yeah. So I have a reason. I have the right to just do what I did. Now, what does it mean to be justified? 
in this passage. I can say I was justified to break the glass. I had a right reason, had ownership. What does it have to do with our relationship to God? Well, after three chapters of telling us how everybody's a sinner, it's pretty easy to see that sinners have no right to be with God, much less to stand in His presence and be welcomed and loved and accepted. But that's what justification does. Now, the Greek word for justification, promise, last Greek word. Almost done. That was righteousness. That's not so important now. This is justified. You see a similarity? Let me go back to righteousness. What's the word? Dikaiosune. That's Yasune. D-I-K-A-I-U-C. Now, justification. D-I-K-A-I-O-O. The authorized version translates it as justify 37 times, just, uh, uh, translates it as be freed once, translates it as be righteous once, and also as justifier once. And it means to render righteous or such he ought to be. To show, to exhibit events. I don't even know what that word means. Maybe it's supposed to be evidence. I just copied and pasted it. To show, exhibit events, one to be righteous, such as he is and wishes himself to be considered. To declare, and that's a big word, pronounce one to be just, righteous, or such as he ought to be. So the root word is the same between righteousness and justified. That's what I'm trying to paint the picture for here clumsily. They're the same root word. So to be justified is to be pronounced as righteous. Now please note, it does not say that the one justified is made righteous, but rather declared righteous. And that's a big difference. Let me ask you a question. In and of yourself, is anybody in here righteous? There is none righteous. No, not one. So how can I be made righteous? I have to be declared righteous. It's a judicial proclamation. God has swung the gavel and declared that His children are righteous. The process of sanctification, which will come later, is us becoming what we have been declared to be. We are saints and sinners at once. Declared saints by God, but acting too often like sinners. Anybody agree with that? Anybody feel that? This is the Latin phrase that Martin Luther used to describe this condition. Let me show you all my Latin chops. You ready? Simo justus et Peccator. Now what's that mean? Simul, where we get our word simultaneous, at the same time. Eustace is righteous. Et is the past tense of eat. No, no. Have you et your meal yet? No. Et is and. Peccator is sinner. So at the same time, God declares someone righteous and at the same time they're sinners. Mm. 
If one is to be accepted by God, welcomed into His presence, he has to be righteous. He has to be right with God. And how does that happen? Our verse told us that we're justified by His grace as a gift. To be declared righteous, to be justified, can only happen by God's grace. But wait, what is grace? We haven't heard that word since chapter 1 verse 7. So let's try to remember what grace is. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is God in and by His own decision out of a great love showering His favor upon us. Grace is God in and by His own decision out of a great love showering His favor upon us. Paul has already made it clear that we can't be justified or made righteous by our doings or by the law. We can't earn it and we can't deserve it. Being right with God is a gift of God. Wherein He shows us grace and declares us righteous through our faith in Jesus. So, are we justified by grace alone? Yes! By grace alone, through faith alone. This is the cry of the reformers. Luther and his buddies, Calvin, Melanchthon, all those guys. And this is what has been hailed through church history as the very center of Christian salvation. Luther declared that the justification by grace alone, through faith alone, is the defining doctrine of the church. He said, if it fades as a doctrine, or if it ceases, the church fails. Calvin said, justification by grace alone through faith alone is the hinge upon which the very gates of heaven open for us. J.I. Packer said, justification by faith alone, by grace alone through faith alone is the atlas that carries the whole of the Christian faith on its shoulders. As we stated near the beginning of the message, this can hardly be overstated. It's a really big deal. And coming out of our seven or eight weeks of seeing the depths of human depravity through sin, this stands in stark contrast and is like a bright sunrise after a long, dark night. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You can't be righteous. You can't do right. You're bad. You're wrong. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. But God, through faith, by grace, has said, I will justify you and make you righteous. And this is about God. It's not even about you. Why would God do this? I hope that's the question that's in your mind and that's what we're going to address next week. Why? We ask the wrong question far too often. We ask, why doesn't God save everybody? The better question is, why would God save anybody? And it's by grace through faith and that is the very cornerstone of Christianity. Now, what about the rest of verse 24? What is redemption? Sorry. Next week. To be continued. Quick recap of what we've covered today. We've covered righteousness, faith, Christ, sin, glory, justified, grace. And that sets us up for next week. And the problem with God calling sinners righteous. 
How does he do that? Why does he do it? And through the end of verse 24 through verse 26, we'll tackle that next week. Now, quick application and we're done. Listen to me. Christian, I'm talking to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have been justified as a gift of God through faith in Christ. Please listen to me. God did not make you just, but He counted you as just. He reckoned you as just, and He reckons you as having the righteousness of God imputed to us through the work of Christ. That transforms our standing with God, not our state that we're in right now. Why does that matter? It matters because sanctification will change our state progressively until we see Jesus face to face and become perfect. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to wait to be perfect to be right with God. I want you to hear that again. You don't have to wait to be perfect to be declared righteous by God. That is the best news in the world. You've got two options. You can try to make yourself perfect and approach God that way, or you can trust God to declare you perfect or righteous through faith in Christ. Give it a shot. Go ahead and try to do it yourself. And I'm afraid that too often that's exactly what we're doing as Christians. We're trying to clean ourselves up, make ourselves better. Something is radically wrong. Listen to me, Christian. You have been declared righteous. That's the first point of application. The second point comes out of that. Remember, Simil Eustus et peccator. We are declared righteous by God when we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You don't have to make yourself right. God declares you right. And then we can move into the Philippians 1.6 promise that says that He will perfect what He has started. You are declared righteous, and hear this Christian, He is making you perfect. That's the path that you are on. God will complete what He started. And you can be assured both of your salvation if you place your faith in Christ, and you can at the same time place your faith in the truth that God is perfecting you and will perfect you when you stand before Him face to face. Right now you have a perfection that is not your own. A perfection of Christ given to you by God. One day, one day Christian, we will stand face to face with God and then we will be perfect as well. That is the good news of Christianity. Last point of application, we're done. If you are sitting in this building this afternoon now, sorry. God Himself offers you the righteousness of Christ. In the face of your sins, in the face of your disgust with God, in the face of your unbelief in God, God stands up and says, I will make you right with me if you will place your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
if you will come and say, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have fallen short of your glory. And I need to be declared righteous. I need you to declare me righteous, God. And I believe that you do that as I place my faith in Jesus Christ. That offer stands today if you don't know Him. You can be right with God. Do you want to be? Because you can be. Come and confess faith in Jesus Christ. Come and admit you're a sinner and that you need to be justified. And through faith in Christ, God will justify you. Sinner, saint, and sinning saint. It's all the same. Let's pray. God, what an amazing thing you have done. And no, we do not deserve it. Nobody in this building deserves it. And we could never attain to it. But as a free gift through our faith in Christ, you say, I will make you right with me. God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak the truth of this to us and prepare us for what you have for us next week. God, help us to just simmer in this truth. Help us to memorize this truth and pray over this truth and meditate on this truth. What it means to be justified and how it happens and why in the world, God, would you even want to do that? Help us, God, by the power of your Spirit. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now would you stand for benediction? This is a good one, by the way. This is a good benediction. It really pertains to what we just talked about. Church, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all the church said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks, guys.